from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Nina Dini. Nina is Iranian and came to this country in the late 70s with her husband to continue their education. Soon after arriving, the Islamic Revolution took place, and because they were Baha'is, their funds for continuing school were completely cut off. They ultimately completed their education, and Nina now teaches at Springfield College in Massachusetts. I started the interview by asking Nina where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I was actually born in Tehran, Iran, until I was 17 years old. I was born and raised in the city of Tehran. And I have a very sweet memories of my childhood. We lived in a, at a time in Tehran where the traffic and the pollution had not been at such a high level. And we grew up in a neighborhood where around us we could play and enjoy. The nature and the streets uh, were not as crowded. So I remember playing with my cousins. I have very, very good memories of my childhood. And what was religious life for you like? I was born and raised as a Baha'i. We always felt that we are not as accepted by the uh, people around us as Baha'is. I used to go to a public school when I was a child for first, second, until fourth grade, actually, I was in a a public school. And I remember my classmates, uh, some of them, would tease me all the time about being a Baha'i, and sometimes they would hear things, uh, in their own households, and they would come and repeat it to me, you know, false accusations and uh, making fun of what he believed in. And I remember I always stood up in front of them, even though some of them were older than me. It was very disheartening, but uh, we had learned in the Baha'i community in Tehran to accept it, uh, tolerate it, and just live with it. Some people were very compassionate and understanding, but there was there is also always a few, you know, that would make sarcastic comments and sometimes even going further than that. Basically, it was the time of the Shah when I was growing up, and the Baha'is enjoyed the relative freedom in uh, conducting the Baha'i affairs. We didn't experience severe persecution. Although sometimes when there were some Muslim holy days, 
people were marching in the streets, exhibiting some type of mourning for the martyrdom of their imams. They would stop in front of the, uh, our house in the middle of the night, and they would scream at the top of their lungs. And it was kind of scary, but these things didn't happen on a regular basis. But we enjoyed relative freedom in comparison to what the Baha'is are experiencing today in Iran. What is the reason that the Baha'is are persecuted in Iran? It started from the inception of the Baha'i faith. Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, is a Persian nobleman who basically in the, around the time of 1844, the Baha'i faith started and Baha'u'llah as a prominent figure at the time, and then later becoming the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, he was persecuted and exiled from Iran. And at his time, about 20,000 believers were martyred because the people were embracing the teachings of Baha'u'llah that were very progressive. And since his teachings indicate that the promised hour has come, and the personage who has been promising all the religions to bring peace and unity to the world has come. Obviously, the clergy and the leaders of the religion arose against him. They persecuted Baha'u'llah and his followers, and they exiled him from land to land until he ended up in Palestine, which is now the state of Israel. However, these persecutions continued very severely until the regime changed and for a while the Baha'is were enjoying some calm. But then when the revolution, the Islamic revolution happened, the Islamic government was established, then the systematic persecution of the Baha'is started because the clergy viewed the Baha'is as heretics, as enemies of Islam, the progressive principles of the Baha'i faith, they find it contrary to what they believe, and they have not accepted the claim of Baha'u'llah as the promised one of their religion. And the same way that the Christians were persecuted at the time of Christ, the same way the Baha'is are persecuted at this time by the authorities, of the Islamic government and the clergy of Shiite Muslims in Iran. Now, you said you grew up in a Baha'i family. How far back does your family go where they were Baha'is? I'm a fourth-generation Baha'i. My great-grandfather lived at the time of Baha'u'llah. He is the cause of all of us in our family to be Baha'is, and he gave his life, actually, for the truth of the faith he believed in. If you would like, I can share his story. Absolutely. This is a, a wonderful story that I remember as children, my mother used to tell us the story, and I'm going to share with you the story of the martyrdom of my great-grandfather, as was recounted to us by my mother when we were children. My mother's grandfather, his name was Mullah Ali Sabdavari, so we are going to refer to him as Ali because his name really was Ali, and he uh, lived at the time of Baha'u'llah. He was so attracted to the cause of Baha'u'llah 
and that his intense love and his great enthusiasm touched the hearts of all those who met him. He dedicated himself to teach the faith at all times and under all conditions and had no desire but to give his life in his path. So my grandfather used to say that in time of prayer, Mullah Ali was often seen crying because of this intense desire. At last he sent a letter to Baha'u'llah by the way of some pilgrims. And in that letter, he asked to be granted the bounty of martyrdom. Baha'u'llah granted his wish and revealed a tablet in his name in which he foretold that soon the uh, Mullah Ali's garment would be colored with his blood. So as soon as he received this tablet from Baha'u'llah, he became very happy and impatiently waited for that promised day. And, you know, it is said that sometimes he was seen weeping, saying that he did not feel worthy of such a bounty and was afraid that this wish may not come true. One day, as my mother remembers her father saying that a tablet was received from Baha'u'llah in honor of the Baha'is of Sabzavar, the city in which he lived. And in that tablet... Baha'u'llah indicated that if the people of Sabzavar only knew what a blessed soul lived amongst them, they would circumambulate the town every morning and every evening. And when the Baha'is of Sabzavar read this tablet, they wondered who might be that precious gem that lived in their midst. Mullah Ali's wife, she was a little bit sarcastic, said to Mullah Ali, it might be you or your friend, Mirza Hedayat. And then Mullah Ali replied, who knows about God's bounty? If he wills, he can choose an Adam and make it into an illumined son. So my grandfather told my mom that he saw his father when Mullah Ali was leaving town for the last time and he was preparing to go for travel teaching to some areas near the city in which he lived, my grandfather pleaded to his father, Mullah Ali, saying, Why are you leaving us? What can we do without you? And Mullah Ali had replied, Don't worry, my son. Rely upon God and trust him. When he left for the last time, my grandfather stood there in the middle of the road and watched him disappear into the horizon, and then he sat down and cried. He said, I found myself all alone in this world. So Mullah Ali left a family of five children and his wife, and they endured many hardships and difficulties after his departure, but by the grace of God, they eventually became very prosperous and successful in their lives. So now Mullah Ali went to Yazd, a city situated in the center of Iran. He was martyred at the age of 43, along with six other Baha'is, and it happened in the year of 1891. So the story of his martyrdom is related in a number of Baha'i history books. A tablet was revealed by Baha'u'llah in Arabic in honor of these seven martyrs. And there is also a passage 
about this martyrdom in Baha'u'llah, King of Glory, which if you wish, I can read from it. Sure. It is actually Baha'u'llah, in his own writing, is writing about the seven martyrs. Actually, Baha'u'llah is quoted in uh, Baha'u'llah, the King of Glory, which is a book about his life by Baluzi, and Baha'u'llah gives us a summary of the account of his martyrdom. This is Baha'u'llah's writing. He says, On another day, Haji Mirza Habibullah recalled Baha'u'llah spoke of Mullah Ali Sabzavari, the martyr. He it was who, when led to the scaffold, instructed the executioner to open one of his veins. And when a bit of his throat was cut, filled his hand with his blood and dyed his white beard red with it. Then, turning to the crowd, he called out, O people, on the day of his martyrdom, Hussein ibn Ali, the third imam martyred at Karbala, uttered these words, Is there anyone truly capable of dispensing victory to come to aid me? And I say to you, O people, is there anyone truly capable of beholding to come to behold me? Haji Mirza Habibullah records that Baha'u'llah in relating this story several times repeated, What weighty words did that man speak? And how with his precious blood did he bear witness to the truth of his faith? People witnessed it but were not moved and heartlessly put to death that innocent soul. All these strange events support the greatness of this blessed cause. They will all be recorded in the pages of history, and future generations will feel proud of them. So you describe Mullah Ali basically requesting martyrdom for the cause of Baha'u'llah. Now, is that the Baha'i perspective for the Baha'is today? That's a very good question. Actually, after Baha'u'llah was exiled and he spent, you know, 40 years in prison, and his last years of his life he spent it in, uh, under house arrest in Akka, which is now in Israel, but at the time was in Palestine, he wrote and revealed many, many tablets and he admonished his followers that this is the day now to serve humanity by our deeds. Like in Iran, there's still martyrdoms that are happening because people are put into jail, and then they force them to recant their faith, and since they are steadfast and they do not want to recant the truth in, in which they believe, they give their life for the faith. This is obviously a praiseworthy act in the sight of God. But we who live in countries in which we enjoy the freedom of religion and the freedom of speech, our duty is to serve humanity and by our deeds and actions testify to the truth in which we believe. Actually, the American Baha'i community are referred by the title of the spiritual descendants of the dawnbreakers who gave their life for the faith, but 
we in this continent, by living a life of sacrifice, are going to testify to the truth of the cause in which we believe. We are invited and admonished to live the life through our deeds. So the Dawnbreakers refer to those early believers in the 19th century who suffered terrible persecution, and many of them were martyred for standing up for teaching the teachings of Baha'u'llah. Had they not given their life and blood to water the tree of this faith, we in the West would not have enjoyed the progress and the uh, propagation of this faith. So they sacrificed themselves for something very lofty. Future generations will uh, be very proud of them. And so early in your life, when you were growing up in Iran, and you were standing up for the Baha'i faith in the face of ridicule and teasing and persecution of, of whatever kind... You were prepared for whatever the consequences were to not back down and hide your faith or hide your beliefs or keep yourself from telling other people about the Baha'i faith. That's exactly the case, and this is the case for every Baha'i, because one of the things that, you know, is the nature of every human being, if we see the truth and we deny it, then our soul is going to suffer, and we impede our spiritual progress, and the purpose of life is to nurture our soul to come to fruition with the fruit of faith and certitude. Uh, Whenever the occasion came in my life to stand for my belief, when I was a youth in Iran, I'm happy that I did it. And in one occasion, I remember I was offered a job. And when I filled an application in the section for religion, I entered, I was about to enter Baha'i, and, you know, the person who was supervising me was advising uh, advising me not to. And then I said, I'm not going to give you the application unless I put Baha'i in here. And then he took me to his supervisors, and the the supervisors could not convince me that I should leave it blank because I was recommended by a high official in the government of the Shah, and they felt obliged to hire me, but they could not get the application with the Baha'i faith in the religious section because that was against the rules at that time to hire the Baha'is. So finally, I was taken to a person that was very close to the secretary of something, you know, I don't remember. And in his room, there were many people sitting, and I was invited to sit next to him, and he started to give me some advice and counseling me that I should not be that fanatical and superstitious and prejudiced to not want to leave that area blank. And then I remember entering into a very engaged discussion with him, proving to him that it was not me who was prejudiced and fanatical, but them who were forcing a human being to deny her beliefs. And then I left his office, 
and went home. And when I went home, I was crying in the streets because I was so heartbroken by this whole process and the ignorance of the people that were surrounding me. And when I came home, and I was only, you know, like in my very early 20s, I think I was like 21 or 22, something of that, around there. When I reached home, this person who occupied a very high position in the government of the Shah called me and told me how proud he was of me. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I felt so good. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. You never know what impression you can make on somebody, I suppose. Exactly, yes. Yeah. What happened to me in Iran is nothing. It doesn't deserve any merit to be mentioned compared to what is happening to the Baha'is in Iran at this time. They're spending months and months and years, actually, some of them, in prison, in very dire conditions. And um, most of them are youth, and they are accused of being spies of Israel. And their crime is holding moral education for children who are destitute and poor. So it is really an outrageous violation of human rights that, that is now happening in Iran. And hopefully the world will, will pay attention and what happened in Nazi Germany will not be repeated in Iran. And why does the Iranian government accuse the Baha'is of being spies of Israel? They actually are looking for all kinds of excuses to persecute the Baha'is. You know, they have found this excuse with which they can fool the ignorant, and that is because the Baha'is, Baha'i shrines are situated in Haifa, Israel, and Iran is an enemy of Israel. So, And the Baha'is go for pilgrimage to Israel, and they have contributed towards the construction of uh, the Baha'i World Center, the buildings of the Baha'i World Center in Israel. They accuse the Baha'is of being spies of Israel, you know, many false accusations and lies that are heaped against the Baha'is. is just unbelievable. And then there are other excuses they, they come up with. They really think that the Baha'is are heretics and the enemies of Islam. I'm sure the leaders of the of Islamic government, they must have read the books by Baha'u'llah, and I'm, I, I just wonder how they could heap such accusations if they know anything about the writings of Baha'u'llah. What's interesting is that it's an accident of history that the burial place of Baha'u'llah is in Israel because it was the Iranian government in the 19th century that insisted that Baha'u'llah be banished not only from Iran exactly. to Iraq, mm -hmm. but then on mm -hmm. uh, deeper, further into the Ottoman Empire which happened to control that area at the time, and that's where he ended right. up dying in house arrest. And it was just a matter of geography that it switched from being land of the Ottoman Empire to the land of Israel. And see how ignorance 
of the hist- details in history. And, uh, and ironically, as you said, it was the Persian government who ordered the exile of Baha'u'llah from land to land until he ended up in Akka, Palestine at the time, and now Israel. And now they're persecuting his followers of being spies of Israel. <laughs> this is really ridiculous right. beyond words. So they want to act ignorant, and I think it is a deliberate pretense because the facts of the history should be well known to any impartial thinker. So, Nina, what were the circumstances that had you leave Iran? The circumstances was that both my husband, Saeed, and I wanted to continue our graduate studies in the United States. And my husband... I got a scholarship from the Iranian government at the time with the government of the late Shah to come to the U.S. to finish his Ph.D. program. At the time he was teaching in the university, I also decided to continue my studies and go to graduate school. So we went to Chicago, and it was only two years since we had arrived from Iran that the revolution broke out and immediately they confiscated all our belongings and the newly built apartment, furnished apartment that we had built with our savings. They confiscated that and then they fired my husband from uh, the university and stopped the scholarship and canceled our passport. Uh, so we were kind of stranded in the U.S. We had two options, either become a religious refugee or go through naturalization and immigration through Saeed's siblings, who were both American citizens. So we applied for green card, and after five years, we became U.S. citizens. And we have been here since 1977, and in 1985, we became U.S. citizens. What happened to your parents at that time? Yeah. The story of my parents is, is very sad because my, my father worked for 30 years as an engineer in telecommunications in one of the institutions of the late regime under the Shah. And my mother was a high school teacher and worked for over 20 years. Actually, at the same time we left Iran, they also left Iran to supervise my younger sister in England. They had built through the savings of their entire life, you know, a two-story building that they rented, and they had a pension, their retirement, to go and live for a few years in England to supervise my younger sisters. What happened is after two years, they confiscated their house, their home in Iran, in Tehran, and they stopped the pension, the retirement money. Basically, my parents were stranded with nothing in England, and they had no way to survive. So they became refugees to the government of of England, 
and after many, many years, they became a, a British citizen. My father, because of all the shock and disappointments that he experienced in his life, developed, uh, I believe, you know, sure. I may be totally wrong, but I believe he developed Parkinson's disease, and he died in 1990 in England. So my parents could never go back home, but through the grace of Baha'u'llah, they had a very happy and comfortable life in England. They lived in uh, Nottingham, and the government was very, very kind and generous to the religious refugees. You know, my mother is now living in England. She's, she has been there for many years, and she really likes England as a country, and she's enjoying life over there, and she's very comfortable. So, Nina, what are the Baha'is doing today about the persecution of their brethren Baha'is in Iran? The Baha'is all over the world are trying to bring to the attention of all the leaders of the government, all the representatives, state representatives, the people who have the power to make change and to make a difference. The Baha'is are trying to, do, to bring to their attention the plight of the Iranian Baha'is. I feel the, not only, you know, the Baha'is are experiencing uh, these severe t- 